Hey, Macca. Hey, Streety. Hey, Nugget. Evening, Gents. Welcome to episode 46 of Sports and Spit. And tonight we have another special guest, the Hunter Valley's very own Ron Burgundy, <laughs> sports reporter for NBN News. Mitchell Hughes, welcome. Good evening, boys. I like it how I'm a special friend of the show and it's taken 46 episodes to get me on. That's <laughs> just how popular you are, mate. <laughs> you had, to we were, your manage, had to go through your management and then yeah. your agent. Oh, crazy. That, that you're crazy. definitely not on our B-list, Mitch. We've just been working ourselves up to the big time. <laughs> Fine-tuning uh, your game before you get to the big time. <laughs> <laughs> so you may know him from your, your nightly news read, Mitchell Hughes. We know him from a few other events around our history. <laughs> But we're very happy to have you here, Mitch. Thanks a lot for coming along, mate. No worries, boys. Pleasure. Yeah. So you've just come from reading the news tonight, have you? The sport news? Yep, yep. Uh, Wednesday night, um, straight off the, um, the set, straight to a haircut and then straight to uh, the, the Zoom with you guys. You've you, you got to look your best for the Zoom with us. Absolutely. Yeah, for the listeners at home, he's very polished, collared shirt, haircut. Uh, I haven't put pants on yet. But... <laughs> yet. It's like 8.30 at night, Nugget. You don't ever put pants on anyway. So oh, a fresh pair at nine. <clears throat> so, Mitch, where do you get your haircut, mate, at, at like 7.30 at night? Uh, so, it depends. If uh, the makeup artist at work could cut it or my cousin's husband, Lee, you know, on Derby right. Street in Newcastle would cut it for me. There you go, eh? Yeah. That's as Newcastle as it gets. Well, I just pop around to my cousin's husband's house, so I love it. <laughs> so, oh, that's lovely. Fantastic. So, Mitch, we wanted to get you on, mate. Over the last couple of episodes, we've been telling you a few stories around COVID-19 and its impact on sport. And you in particular, with your role as Newcastle's finest sports reader, um, <laughs> would have had, in particular, a pretty interesting story. So we just kind of spoke a little bit about it. You're also the proud father of two six-month-old twins. Certainly am. Yeah, and uh, and you've just told us that you avoid the witching hour quite strategically by going to work of an afternoon. So your beautiful wife Laura, she takes care of that witching hour for you, mate. So very quickly before we start, do you want to give her a shout out and a big thanks for actually everything that she does for you, mate? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The uh, the boys are a handful, as anybody that has twins or kids in general would know. And um, yes, Laura has been an absolute trooper. We've gone through, we had uh, six weeks pretty much on our own because the boys were born on the first day of COVID restrictions. So no visitors to the hospital uh, and then no visitors to home for the first five and a half weeks when we got home. So basically mm. it was a cage death match between two newborns <laughs> and my wife and I. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, by the end of it, pretty much um, Laura's mum and my mum had to be tagged in to come and actually help out a little bit because it was just brutal. And um, no, the boys are awesome, but yeah, the, 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 the good times are great and the bad times are brutal. So uh, <laughs> yeah, Laura does a lot of the heavy lifting by herself. Uh, seven days a week, she's doing, um, well, five days a week especially, she's doing between three o'clock and uh, seven o'clock on her own. And then, um, yeah, obviously every other day there's... Uh, feeding and bathing and all the other fun stuff. So, no, nah, she's a trooper and I definitely uh, could not uh, thank her enough for, for her efforts so far. <laughs> What's five and a half weeks of pure death match look like in a house <laughs> during COVID-19, mate? Like, like, having had two children of my own, not twins, like that whole newborn period to not have people come and visit, mate, like that must have been a big impact for you guys. It was... <clears throat> 
it was just insane. I think it's because, um, so I'm 42 and, and my, I'm the oldest of cousins on my mum's side and I'm um, a big group of friends from school and pretty much anybody I call a friend has got kids besides uh, one of my mates, Ray, and he shouldn't have kids. <laughs> Um, so um, Ray still is a that we, child that we know of that we know <laughs> yeah. of, exactly, that he's taking responsibility for. Um, but uh, yeah, so we love you, Ray. If you're <laughs> listening, mate. So unfortunately, I kind of had an impression, I guess, uh, you know, what I thought new parenthood would look like, and you think of, you know, like going to the hospital to visit friends when they've had their kids and, you know, then having people come to the house and then the newborn stage is actually the good stage when people come over because the kids aren't too active. They're pretty much routine. They sleep a lot. But by the time we actually had people ready to come over, it was two months in and they were starting to get a bit unsettled. And yeah, to be honest, the first two months of oh, six weeks, especially was just brutal because the boys had a few extra things like tongue ties, which we had to get surgically fixed up. There was other bits and pieces with them where, um feeding was difficult and you know we didn't know whether to do bottles or you know breastfeeding and all that sort of stuff so it was just everything was working it out yourself and it, you know i guess essentially you were doing zooms to people and because it was COVID, you couldn't leave the house so mm. essentially we'd go for a walk we'd grab a coffee we'd do a lap of hamilton and come home and um, that was pretty much it for the day and um yeah the unsettled nature of you know the early couple of weeks it was just um yeah, it was it was brutal and um yeah unfortunately the unsettled times continue to be the boys are enjoying a three-week stretch of not sleeping for more than two hours at a time so um, <laughs> i'm very very tired ah uh, that's okay mate my kids are enjoying a seven-year stretch of not sleeping more than two, <laughs> two hours at a time mate so so don't worry it doesn't get any better oh <laughs> excellent <laughs> so mitch your your job as a newsreader is is obviously not one that you um come across um, amongst the general population it's quite specialized and your your one voice reaches hundreds of thousands of people across the hunter valley region and i guess across regional new south wales as well what actually uh, got you into this particular industry? So go back to high school. I think uh, you guys would all remember the Inside Sport magazine. Yep, definitely. Which was quite popular uh, back then. Yes, I, I got to fess up. That was my maths textbook for year 11 uh, at Erindale <laughs> um, College in Canberra. Needless to say, I didn't do very well in that maths class. <laughs> yeah, well, I was pretty much the same. Uh, Inside Sport was pretty much the, the thing that I... I loved when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the NBA, the NRL, the Premier League, um, you name a sport that was on TV. I probably watched it religiously. Uh, my brother and I were obsessed with the NBA when we sort of, you know, in between. We actually picked up the NBA when Jordan retired, strangely enough. Mm. Um, and then uh, I think an auntie of mine bought me an Inside Sport magazine. It was detailed all about Jordan. And then my brother and I became obsessed with, um, with the NBA. And anyway, I just really loved the Inside Sport angle of the, it wasn't the scandal it was the story of the, of the sports yeah. people the stories in inside sport were fantastic in the sense of they didn't dramatize anything they told the actual true story and they told they, they wrote some great articles yeah and unfortunately i feel like what's actually happened and this has been an interesting thing for me in my career so i started going to uni in about 96 didn't get a very good mark at high school so it took me two years to get into communications by the time I got in, um, I wanted to do communications. I got a job at NBN through another friend of a friend of a, like um, a group of friends of mine that uh, through, who I met Fife through, um, Corey McDonald. He got me a job at NBN as an editor in uh, 1999, and I went in there doing tape editing. And um, 
I really loved it. And at uni, I, I'd sort of started to gear myself towards journalism and um, I got some experience at NBN and then started doing it. And it was probably around the time when I realized I didn't want to do news because I didn't like going to car accidents and house fires and, you know, court and all that sort of stuff. And then it was probably around then I started to realize that sport had sort of become, you know, who's Shane Warne text messaging, what nurse in, you know, the UK is Shane Warne text messaging. And I remember thinking that's not why I liked sports journalism. It's not why I got into it. And I think the, the best thing for me skipping right ahead was that I started at NBN behind Microbit as a reader, Jim Callanan as the weekend sport reporter and full-time sport reporter. And they kind of let you follow your passion. If you liked certain sports, they didn't care what you did as long as you did it well. And I think the one thing that's come out of my career in sport is that the further on I got, the more I got to have control and the more I've been able to gear NBN sport towards telling the stories rather than the scandals. So it's probably why, and I'm probably skipping ahead again, but I've actually grown increasingly frustrated with the NRL because the NRL for me went from being something where I loved going and standing on the hill from 88 to, you know, 2002. But then all of a sudden the NRL became more about the scandals and the drugs mm. and, you know, the, you know, you know, assaults on women and all that sort of stuff. And as much as you need to report that sort of stuff, it sort of, for me, took away from the context of sport. And I thought, felt that that was a general thing that was happening. And it's why I probably enjoyed more. I became quite good friends with Kurt Fernley just because I really admired Kurt and he was a really inspirational guy. And I just, I really admired the fact that when I told Kurt's story, I wasn't telling a story of the scandal and all that mm. sort of stuff. I was telling the story of how did you overcome this and why did you crawl the Kokoda track and all those sort of things. And I think yeah. I was able to gear my reporting style and my preferences towards the way I liked inside of sport. And I got lucky. Yeah. I was just in the right place, right time. Jim Callanan, Moved to Sydney in 2011 and I was on the brink of thinking of going to Sydney myself and then I got to take over weekend sport and then three, four years later, Ragsy retired and I became head of sport and main reader and, you know, got to run the department. So right place, right time. So you're kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so well, it's, a good point to, it's a good point to raise, isn't it? Because you're not just a newsreader here in, in Newcastle. You are head of regional sport for NBN, right? Which means that your responsibilities cover, do they cover the entire state of New South Wales in terms of the regional areas? Is that so what? Is, if you look at our viewing area, we probably start at the Hawkesbury, we go up to the Gold Coast and we go out west as far as Coonabarabran, Tamworth, um, okay. Moree, Glen Innes, um, Armadale. So the north, the New England northwest, north coast and central coast and Gold Coast. Yeah, well, okay. Oh, wow. And and Mitch, is that like for you, mate? Like, obviously, you know, you do say that you got lucky, but there must have been a lot of hard work in that, mate. Coming from the editing room, for, from being a relief reader, all that type of stuff. That is a long journey that you've dedicated your life to, mate. And tell us a little bit about like what kind of has kept you going through that. Uh, to, uh, at first, it was probably the variety because I did four years of editing and that was a good base to learn the skills of how to put a story together and what a good, you know, because I was taking what we call the feed from Sydney. So you were getting Ken Sutcliffe's story set up to you every night as an editor and you were listening to Ken's voice and you were listening to the way you put a story together and you were thinking, okay, and you were absorbing it. I didn't realise I was absorbing it, but at the time mm. I was just cutting them together to put them on our news. And then 
after four years, I kind of decided at 25, I thought I probably should get a full-time job. And um, I went to the boss at the time and said to him, look, I've finished my degree. I've done an honours degree um, in communications. I've done well in that. Um, is there a chance of getting a full-time job here? And he said, what do you want to do? Be a cameraman or be a journalist? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I'll give you a month's trial. You can do camera work and journalism every day. And he said, at the end of the month, we'll assess both of your work and we'll see what you do. On my very first day, they sent me to Surfest and they sent me to a local cricket game. I came back from both of them, wrote two stories and the producer said, who helped you with these? And I said, no one. He said, mate, I don't have to change a word. And he walked straight into the boss's office and said, tell Mitch to not worry about being a cameraman. He's a journalist. And I was like, no, yeah, okay. And then strangely enough, here's a bit of a um, celebrity um, name dropping event. I'd been working as a casual, as a journalist for about, six weeks and every week we used to do this hilarious thing on NBN called the chat with the chief and Paul Harrigan used to come in every week and the chief would sit down and he'd walk in I love the chief so I'm not trying to put any crap on him but he'd walk in every week and he'd been at the footy show the night before and he'd come into our office the night the next day and he'd walk in he'd go geez big fella I got nothing for you today and I'd go <laughs> right oh chief and you'd have to make up a story for him to go down to the studio and say, this week I'm focusing on this, this and this. And anyway, there was a week I must have just written something really good and it was really insightful and whatever happened. And he walked back upstairs and he walked into my boss's office and he said, Jim, you've got a good one there, mate. He's an absolute gun. He, does, he knows what, what he's talking about. He's passionate and he's good at his job. Don't let that one go. And uh, my boss came out to me a couple of days later and he said, you know, Paul Harrigan just gave you a huge endorsement for this job. And I said, oh, really? And I went to Chief and I said, Chief, mate, thank you so much. That's amazing. He said, Mitchie, nothing says thank you like a Mars bar and a can of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Chief's hit you up for something from the vending, from the work vending machine. Yeah, exactly. He couldn't, he couldn't find $5.60 to buy. So. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his contract with NBM was twice as much as mine and he was at work for three hours a week. So uh, <laughs> he wasn't buying anything. But, uh, well, there's, no. been a couple of, there's been a couple of scandals in the media about cash for comment, but I really like that Chief is selling his comments for less than $5 <laughs> from the work vending machine. I think that's a fantastic story. Yeah, so, so no, the, boss, uh, the boss did take a chance on me, gave me my first job at Tweed Heads, and um, that was a one-man, um, one reporter, one cameraman bureau, and uh, they sent me to Tweed Heads, and, yeah, I spent a year in Tweed Heads, then they expanded, made it a Gold Coast Bureau. I did a year up there. This was before any professional sporting teams up on the Goldie, so no Titans, no Blaze, no um, oh, Suns or anything like that. There's and, been plenty uh, that have come and gone. Yeah, exactly. And that was the period when there was none in 04 to 06. And, um, yeah, cut my teeth up there and um, got brought back to Newey. And then, yeah, it was. I was fourth in line. There was another bloke named Adam McKilrick, who's a good mate of mine. Um, who was behind Jim Callanan. And when I got back to Newey, it was just a matter of, yeah, persevering and, and you know, taking your opportunities and, and, you know, trying to be on top of everything so that if you got sent to the Knights, you got sent to the Jets, you got sent to the Wallabies, you got sent to the Waratahs, you just tried to know everything you could about it. And, um, you know, if they gave you an opportunity, you just had to take it. And, yeah, I mean, a bit of luck, but, yeah, you're right, a bit of hard work as well. So after 20... One years at the at the place, I guess it's um, I've been there long enough to um, you know to earn the right to, to be the the head of sport. Good on you, only, mate. Well, only twenty one years then, mate. It's hardly mm. hard work. Jeez, <laughs> you've had uh, you would have had two bouts of long service leave already. That's, that's great. 
I have got uh, plenty of that uh, left over. It's always nice when they tell me at work, you know, oh, where are you going on holidays? And I said, yeah, they only give the good employees holidays around here. <laughs> so, Mitch, what about, what about, you've spoken a little bit about the, the COVID impact with regards to your twins and your wife. What about at work, mate? You, you obviously, the timing of the, of the birth of your twins probably was right on the date of kind of COVID shutdown. How did that impact sports in, in this particular community and your ability to report on it, mate? What do, you, what do you do when there's, as a person who talks about sport and reports on sport, and suddenly there is no sport? So the first probably two or three weeks <clears throat> when the boys were born and I was off, we were fairly lucky. There was still about a week or two where some sports were being played. I think the Jets, the A-League was still going for a week or two. Our local yeah. comps had, had started. Uh, I think cricket was still going. But cr- very quickly, we found that pretty much nightly, um, my colleagues were doing stories on what was being shut down, what the situation was, mm-hmm. if the comps were still going ahead, what were the stipulations and rules. And then the other um, stories were for the people who weren't going to be able to compete, what are you going to do now, essentially? Mm. Um, How are you going to stay in shape? How are you going to keep in contact with coaches and all that sort of stuff? Uh, By the time I got back to work, which was six weeks later, the well had kind of run dry for my colleagues for what they thought they could tap into. But one of the things I find with my job these days is that anybody who's been doing a job for a while, I think the job becomes easier. And for me, it was the fact that when I got back, I got them to give me a list of who they'd spoken to while I was off. And I just quickly went, right, and I brainstormed with the other journos and we came up with like 20 more athletes. And we basically mm-hmm. just started tapping into all my contacts. So there'd be a guy named Sam Masters, who's a speedway rider who rides for like Edinburgh and Wolverhampton in, in the UK. And he was home with his wife and his baby, but he had an extraordinary to- story to tell where he was over there for three days to prepare for the UK season. And they said, look, COVID's going to smash us, get back on the plane and go home. And he did. And lucky he did because basically everything went to quarantine. And obviously, as we know, the UK hasn't coped as well as we have. And yeah. he's been able to go back here and get job seeker and all that sort of stuff. If he'd have been in the UK, he'd have been stuck and he wouldn't have got job seeker, job keeper, job seeker. And um, he would have been in big trouble. So, I think within the first four or five days of me being back at work, we spoke to Sam Masters, the speedway rider, Jason Sanger, the New South Wales cricketer, um, Rhiannon Ifland, the cliff diver. Um, There was just a host of individuals who I've built up a rapport with over 10 years in the job. And it's, you know, it, it was easy enough at the time with the technology to do this sort of thing. And I could do zoom meetings from home because we were quarantined at home until I had to go in and do makeup. So my routine was literally working from home, writing stories from home, sending them into the editors to get edited at the station, then getting to the studio at about four 15 to get makeup done, ready to read the regional bulletins until live at six o'clock. So yeah. yeah, So um, we were able to tap into a lot of the contacts and yeah, it was quite nice. The boss gave a big rap to uh, the sports crews just saying that, you know, it was credit to the contacts that we've made that people were willing to speak to us during that time when they were obviously struggling to know what they were going to do. And um, even when sports started to trickle back, uh, like the NRL and things like that, the, the restrictions that were put on us was everything was a Zoom meeting. You weren't allowed to shoot training vision. Then you could, but you could only shoot it from 50 metres away. Um, you know, and then there was other sports that were trying to get the go ahead and they couldn't go ahead. So, yeah, it's been... It's been a pretty strange 
battle, but you know, somehow we've just managed to find content. You know, horse racing came back, so we were able to tap into a little bit of that. Uh, the AFL came back, so we were talking to a uh, Isaac Heaney. Actually, we had a pretty bad run. We got a few sports people back. We got Isaac Heaney playing, then he got a season-ending injury. Ben Simmons was back in the NBA, Newcastle Junior. Then he got a season-ending injury. Um, and yeah, there was two or three where we were like, oh, good, this will be good. And then all of a sudden, all of them got season-ending injuries. So we couldn't cover that from a local point of view anymore because we didn't have any locals playing in the sport. And Mitch, what about those, those, those interviews and everything else that you, when you speak to those people, those athletes, what was the reaction like from them in terms of what I've been preparing for is gone now and there's no chance it's coming back at least for the short term. What was the, were people, okay, I've got a plan. I know what I'm doing. Or were people kind of like, mate, I don't know what's going on to be honest. And I couldn't tell you what, what was the reaction from the athlete? Absolutely. Completely different depending on the athlete, the sport, because so I spoke to, um, we've got a really good group of Paralympians in Newcastle. Um, Kurt Fernley's obviously retired, but we've still got Christy Dawes, Reid McCracken moved down from Bundaberg. There's a guy named Luke Bailey who moved down from Tari. They all train with um, Kurt's old coach. Mm. And all of them had varying reactions just to the fact that the Paralympics had been postponed for a year. So Christy Dawes had had a baby. She was happy because she wasn't back up to where she wanted to be. So now she's got an extra year to get to where she wants to be. What's her event? Sorry to say, mate. What's Christy's event? So she does, um, she's wheelchair and she does the like longer distance ones. She does the marathon and she does like the 5,000 and stuff like that. She also does the relay, the 4 by 400 relay. Yeah, she's a she's a track athlete, but also a road athlete in the wheelchair like events, Trudy. And yep. I think she's like you know the ten thousand like the ten thousand meters, all that sort of stuff. As Mitchie said, she's really quite a great athlete. That's it, it's a bonus for her, right? Like you get an extra year to prepare, um, but for others, not the same scenario. Yeah, whereas Reed and Luke Bailey were both ready to to peak, you know, to go up to that. Uh, According to the wife, I'm yelling, so I'm just going to tone it down a little bit. Oh, sorry. It's your inside voice, mate. Don't worry. When you're on Zoom, we use it as well. So. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a lot of them, uh, like Luke and Reed, were basically ready to, to like, because they taper, you know, like boxers were yeah. taper ready for a, for a bout. The boys were tapering ready to do what they had to do to get ready for it. So I think for them, they were okay because a lot of their stuff comes from the government, like grants for, like, Paralympic athletes and Olympic athletes but then switch focus to like um, team sports guys. I think they were okay because again, the responsibility didn't fall onto them. It was like their teams had to find ways of paying them and training them and all that sort of stuff. Like the Jets, um, I know the Jets boys, when that quarantine happened, they all got sent like running machines and stuff like that from local gyms just to make sure they kept fit. You know, whereas if you're a local sports person competing on a national stage, you had to find ways of doing things to make sure you could keep going. But if your sponsorship, if your money comes from competing, you were mm. like, well, you know, I'm back on job seeker. And I know plenty of guys, there's golfers mm. that are Newcastle guys. There's James Nitties, who's a Newcastle boy. He's played on the PGA tour. He's a great guy. He comes home every year to see his mum, and he lives in the U S and he was basically, you know, should I come home? Should I stay in the U S cause I can't play. And then all of a sudden he's back you know, visiting people, but then there's quarantine problems. And for them, they're very self-funded. I think people think golfers, for example, earn a fortune and basically live this high life. 
if you're not playing and entering tournaments and taking prize money, you're basically not getting paid. So mm. it was really frightening scenario for the golfers and um, especially the ones living around here. Like I even know we're going to preview a tournament tomorrow down at Toronto. Um, we've got guys like Andrew Dote, who's finished second at like the Scottish Open, the French Open, and you know he's living in Charlestown. And basically, when it all happened, he set up nets in his house and putting greens and all that sort of stuff. But after about a month, when they knew nothing was going to come back till probably Christmas, he just said, "Well, I don't even think I'll play for a little while." And a lot of them have actually mm. not played golf for a month or two months. And where they went from playing five days a week, seven days a week, they'll go and play no days a week. And yeah. and now they're all just starting to get a bit motivated again because they think maybe they'll get back to the Asian tour or the Japanese tour or the um, the Chinese tour. But, you know, they still don't know because a lot of the places that are trying to get back and going, the Indian tour and stuff like that, are some of the biggest hotspots for COVID in the, in the world. So they don't want to risk going and playing, quarantining for two weeks, playing, coming mm -hmm. home and quarantining for two weeks. It's a five-week round trip to play a tournament overseas. Yeah. <laughs> and if, it, if it's not a productive one, then the cost of that for them, given that they yeah, are self-funded, would be significant, right? So. Oh, and golfers standing over a putt. I've said this to guys before. I've known amazing guys, guys who are amazing as amateurs because they don't care. They miss the putt. Golf New South Wales, Golf Australia is paying for their trip to go to the next tournament. The minute you're a professional and you earn every dollar that funds your career, you stand over a putt on the 18th that can either earn you 150000 or 65000 And I guarantee mm. you that's the most nervous putt you'll take in your whole life. And basically, those are the sort of things that they have to factor in because they're self-funded uh, athletes. It's an interesting That's point, Mitch, you made about Olympic athletes and their, their tapering and their Olympic cycle. And given that the cycle has now jumped from, I guess, five years for, from the last Olympics, 16 to 21, and then it will be three years from 21 to 24, um, it'll be, be interesting to see the, I, I suppose, um, well, record counts uh, and sort of you know, um, performances that sort of you know, break expectations records in Tokyo, um, I guess, with the interrupted preparation and also potentially a lack of crowds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you guys must have noticed most of the sports you watch these days, it's either weird because the crowd noise is pumped in or mm. it's weird because there's no cutaway shot of the crowd going nuts and that goosebump effect when there's a major moment in the game, it's just not there at the moment. So, I don't know, Kathy Freeman, does she win the two uh, does she win the race in in 2000 at the Sydney Olympics if the stands are empty? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, it's a really good point, isn't it? I mean, does it change the actual performance that an athlete gives or is able to give because of that motivation of the crowd spurring them on, right? Like, so, yeah. yeah exactly. we, and Mitch, do you think, is that, a, is that a big concern, the lack of crowds for sport, not just for the athlete's performance, but for the viability of, of the clubs, especially around Newcastle, right? Like, we've seen Newcastle's professional sporting landscape littered with clubs that have struggled. Do you think that there's a, a real possibility in this economic downturn that there'll be a struggle for professional sporting clubs to survive, mate? I think the way I see it at the moment, um, it's not Newcastle, but I was reading a really interesting article last night about English football, how the top flight of English football has very much dominated, um, I guess, the money and made it so hard for clubs in that traditional second, third, fourth tier to try and advance. You've almost got to be bought by a billionaire from another country mm. in order to compete these days. 
and, and clubs are dying. There are actual clubs in the third and fourth tier that are dying. And mm. I saw the article basically saying that the Premier League clubs aren't going to prop up these lower um, tier clubs because it's not in their best interest to do it because, you know, they don't really care. They've got the money. They'll spend it where they want to spend it. I mm. think in Australia, the thing we've always struggled with is that we've got too many sports and too few people. You've got 25 yeah. million people and... F- 17 professional sporting codes across Australia. And I think the reason that we always struggled with keeping every sporting franchise we had here in Newcastle is because the dollars that go towards sponsorship have always, and again, whether this is a criticism or not, it's not my opinion. I was, I remember being at uni in 98 and having a professor back then who wrote a paper about how the Knights were bad for Newcastle because the money that they took from sponsorship basically was filtered out of the pockets of every other potential sporting franchise. It's not an even landscape because the Knights were sort of first, essentially, you know, KB United and some of the other old um, soccer football franchises. But when the Knights came in and they were such a big attraction, were they a detriment to the city because they took so many sponsorship dollars out of the pockets of other teams? And we've seen it. I mean, the Jets have had, what, six owners in 14 Mm. years of the franchise being an A-League franchise. And every time it's been some billionaire who just wasn't prepared to lose money every year. And it's happened again. Martin Lee may sell the club within the next two weeks, as far as we know, to a Chinese um, investment company consortium, apparently from Melbourne. So, but again, it's just... That's not going to end well. No, exactly. And it hasn't so far in the last couple of seasons. So, but you're right. I mean what they were talking about with the lower tiers in English football was that they will rely on gate takings because they've got patriotic mm. 5,000 supporters who turn up every week. Without those supporters, they've got no funds. They can't buy players. They'll slip further down the tiers and then all of a sudden they disappear. I think Newcastle, the Knights certainly couldn't sustain four or five seasons with no crowds or, mm. or half crowds or 25% crowds and the Jets definitely couldn't sustain um, two or three seasons with no crowds. So um, I think that it'll very much depend on how quickly we bounce back from this. I think if seasons for the next two or three seasons are still affected by COVID, you'll Mm. see stuff like broadcast deals will come into question. You know, that money will have to be distributed amongst clubs for salary caps. And I mean, the A-League's already struggling because the broadcast deal is so um, reduced now from Foxtel Mm. and they're trying to get the players. We don't even know when the next season's going to start. We think it's going to start in January, but the way they're going, they're trying to shuffle it towards winter and then the A-League will start competing for bums on seats with, you know, the NRL, the AFL. And whether that'll be a good thing or a bad thing, we don't know. But in terms of crowds and in terms of um, revenue from, from the broadcast there, we know it's going to be down. And, um, yeah, it is, it's disheartening, though, because it feels like there is a core 15,000 people who go and watch the Knights and a core 10,000 that go and watch the Jets. Yet the Jets just never seem to break even, whereas the Knights are starting to feel like they turn the corner. But whether that's just better management from the West's group or whether it's, um, you know, actual um, crowd numbers and, and membership numbers and money that comes in through other avenues. I think that's a, yes. a lot of poke, pokey dollars coming from West. But, <laughs> I mean, time will tell. But interesting point you make about gate <clears throat> and things like that. I mean, I'm a Knights member. I've been to every game I could this year. At the same time, I haven't paid for a single because they did the whole pledge or what have you. So, yeah, it's an interesting point as far as, well, next year, time will tell on that sort of thing because they can't sustain what they've got now. No way. No, and I guess the hardest thing for the Knights is going to be 
we were talking about at work the other day, the Knights have sort of built, you know, when Wayne Bennett was here, he built a team that he thought could get as far as it could get, right? And they got to the game before the grand final. Then they fell away dramatically because he built it up with a lot of guys that were, you know, getting to the end of their careers. Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> the Knights have gone out and spent a lot of money. They've renewed Kalen Ponga. They've brought in Tyson Frizzell. They're renewing the Safidis. You know, there's a lot of money that's been spent. In order to keep them under the cap, it's like first year you'll be at this level, second year you'll be this level, third year you'll be this level. Eventually something has to give. So people will have to start going in the next two or three seasons. And you think about Mitchell Pierce, does he have three years left? Does he have four years left? So eventually you've got to say that tomorrow could, tomorrow, next year, sorry, could be the year the Knights kind of want to say, right, oh, we've thrown all the eggs into this basket because this is what we've built towards. But if you can't have crowds, if you've gone and spent all that money and you can't have big crowds, you know, because we don't know if COVID's going to be around until, you know, February next year, June next year, December mm. next year. If their crowds are way down, you've gone and spent all this money, extra money on the Frizzells and all that sort of stuff. Then again, are you going to break even? Are you going to lose heaps of money? Because they used to lose money all the time when Johns was around and that wasn't because of him. That was just because of the nature of the beast, you know, like yeah. they, re they relied on crowds and if they didn't have a good season, they, you know, they didn't break even. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that will impact it in the business of sport, Mitch, is that you don't just lose crowds, but you also, in an economic recession, you lose budget, marketing budgets to spend on corporate hospitality and advertising at games and partnerships with clubs that do actually make them money. And, and the reality is, is, I think, not just here in Newcastle, but I think across Australia, I think we will see in about six to 12 months' time a pretty big impact on our sporting landscape with some franchises in different sports really struggling to stay alive because of this economic downturn, because of the impact of losing even, even part of a season without crowds and without full marketing budgets for people to put behind it. So, yeah, and also you, you, you lose, if the community isn't all earning money, you know, yeah they don't go out and buy the new jersey every season as well. You know, they don't go and buy yeah. the hat. They don't go and buy the scarf, you know. So yeah. you lose revenue from that sort of stuff as well. And I think that that's going to have a huge impact on some of the smaller sports rather than AFL, NRL. I, I've been reading that, you know, the women's big bash this season is all going to be based in Sydney. So you're not even yeah, going to have... Hub. Yeah, you're not going to have the, the, the Hobart Hurricanes playing in Hobart every second week and actually having people coming and watching them uh, at Bellary, you're going to have them in a hub in, in, in Sydney and crowds are either going to be non-existent or small. And then the same thing, the NBL, this is all at the moment speculation. I've heard two or three different things. Sorry, the WNBL. Um, I've heard different rumours of the WNBL could be in a bubble in Canberra. It could be in a bubble in Queensland. It could mm. be in a bubble in New South Wales. And yeah. at this stage, again, WNBL suffers greatly from um, lack of crowds, you know, and if someone like the Perth Lynx have got to fly across and spend three or four months in New South Wales, Canberra or Queensland, they get yeah. not a dollar from that sort of stuff, you know, and they don't have big TV broadcast deals because the WNBL yeah. gets a game on uh, once a week maybe and um, everything else is, you know, live streams and you don't get any advertising dollars from them. So it could be the fringe sports that greatly suffer and you may actually see sports that have started to make headway like, you know, the WBBL and stuff like that actually start to slide backwards because of uh, the pandemic. Mitch, from what you've seen from um, broad broadcasting of, say, your major codes uh, in Australia and overseas, and we'll take, like, 
the NRL, AFL, um, the NBA, you know, I think has done it quite well, um, APL and, and European football in general. Are there any sort of trends or things that you've that, that these leagues have adjusted to in their broadcasts and the way they're, they're reported, et cetera? Do you think uh, moving forward, when, when you know, if, if things ever hopefully get, get back to normal with, with regards to crowds, what sort of things do you, do you, do you think the way the game's presented will be, will be adopted from a forced change to when when we can all go back to a sporting event. Um, but, you know, what, what sort of things have, have been implemented now that will continue on, even though they may not necessarily have to be? Well, there's actually one thing that I think has become a new trend in sports broadcasting that I actually really hate, and that's the go and ask a question of the athlete at halftime or as they're walking off the court. Yeah. Uh, they do it in the NRL, they do it in the A-League, they do it in the AFL, they do it in the NBA. And my brother was the first one who'd say to me, because I remember him sending me a YouTube clip of some, I can't remember which player it was, but some player just turned around and said to whoever the reporter was, what a stupid question, and just walked off. And I thought, <laughs> it's right. Like, the last thing you want to do is be like, I've just got to get my thoughts together about how I played in that first half. I want to go and hear what the coach has to say. The last thing you want to do is present, a, you know, a, an honest front to me, to a reporter as you're walking off at half time. And I don't think it adds that much of an insight to... Um, to the viewer's experience. I don't think the viewer is sitting there thinking, oh, I really wonder what, you know, Mitchell Pierce thinks as he walks off the field at half time. It's like, if you're a Knights fan, they're getting beat by 20, get in the shed, go and find out what's going wrong and get back out there and do better in the second half. So I think the fact that the COVID thing has meant that reporters can't be interactive with the players is something that, you know, what isn't happening at the moment. And to me, I would hope that that actually doesn't continue because as much as they're trying to find new ways of, of, of changing broadcasts and making them more interactive and making them more or different, I guess. That's one to me that just didn't really make any sense. Um, I don't mind the post-game interviews, stick a microphone on the sideline, chat to them. Of course, you want to get the reaction to someone who's just, you know, scored a hat-trick of tries or won the grand final, all that sort of stuff. But um, those sort of things to me were a change that was for the worse. So hopefully that's something that they don't bring back once this sort of COVID stuff has, uh, I don't know, has has hopefully gone away but i don't know is it something you guys think is 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 enjoyable i never think it's good i guess i never played sport at the highest level but i've played high enough to know that if i was going off at half time and i was thinking you know that sucked the last thing i want to do is talk to a reporter yeah Yeah, sorry nugget you go Oh, I've, I've played at a very high level of most sports I play. But, um, <laughs> yes. But just, um, <laughs> no, I can 100% agree. And I think it's what you sort of touched on at the very start of this interview, which was, you know, sport are looking for a story. And it, oh, we saw it, um, it was a couple of weeks ago, it was a Giants game and their captain came off and he basically just said, he goes, oh, I had, wasn't a very good form. He goes, no, we're shit. It's terrible. And just kept going. But, the story headline out of that wasn't that they got beaten by 40. It was he's on his teammates and he's having a go at them. And it's like, well, no, you've mm. shut the microphone in his face. And I think that's maybe part of the angle. Not to, it gives them an insight, yes, but at the same time, it gives another angle of us, another story of he thinks his team shit, he thinks whatever. So well, the, the other I, thing I, too I, is. I don't that, like it. Yeah, a lot of stuff isn't sort of, a, is, is, well, now because, you know, the most important thing in sports reporting because of the 24-hour news cycle and the rate at which people refresh the screens on their, on their devices is that, you know, the, the, the hot take has a lot of currency. 
at the moment. So the hot take of, uh, of your example there could be your Giants play coming off and, and, and dropping an F-bomb or a swear word and suddenly it, it becomes less about the game and more about, oh, he slipped up and he said this. And so, I mean, I'm with you. I think a halftime interview is ridiculous. to see Freddie Fittler chasing guys at halftime on, a, on the footy on a Thursday and a Friday night. And you're just like, just let him go. Like, it's pointless. Like, you know, there's not, not a lot of quality sort of, uh, you know, information you're going to get from someone during the game because they don't want to show all their cards. But also, too, you know, the, the quality of people putting all sorts of stuff out there you know, just dilutes, you know, what good stuff there, there is available. Um, yeah, it's, yeah uh, me too. What about, let's talk about that. So I, I do agree. Like I think in, in terms of in our world today, what we're looking for is there's, there's content because it's insightful and it tells a story or there's content because it entertains and distracts. And, and that interview at halftime seems to be a bit more of about a distraction or like, or hopefully a bit of entertainment where someone drops an F bomb. But one of the other trends, Mitch, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, that kind of caused a little bit of controversy in at least the AFL this year where um, some of the journalists in your industry are employed by the leagues, right? So they're employed by the NBA because they're running their own websites, they're running their own content. And so there seems to be some sort of element or, or understanding for those journalists that they should report favorable stories. And as a journalist, sometimes you don't, get the chance to report all favorable stories. Sometimes there is bad news and that's, that's what you have to report on. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that particular trend where people are kind of employed by a league and, and therefore feel obligated to report good news stories as well? Yeah, controlling absolutely. the narrative. <clears throat> yeah. And that's, you're exactly right. Yeah. That's, it is controlling the narrative. And the, the, the reason you had media was to try and get to the, I guess the, the root of the story, you know, you wanted to actually find out what the real reason for something was. And if you're being employed by that league, you're getting unfettered access to the players, but on the proviso that you're probably going to say something positive. And again, I know I go, I come back to the NRL a lot, but I guess I'm exposed to a lot because I work for like the host broadcaster. The one thing that frustrates me the most is that if, for example, and this is a really relevant example this week, um, Mitch Barnett, he is, uh, you know, was accused of a racial slur against Tyrone Peachy. Mm. Now, he gets not put in front of the media. He gets completely sheltered from the media and he won't speak to the media for the rest of the season. If the Knights made mm. the grand final... It, that He's never be. given an interview, uh, yeah. No. And so the one thing I've said, though, is... And I've said this before I was a parent. If you were a parent and somebody did... And your kid did something wrong... The idea of going to the principal and saying, my son doesn't have to answer or my daughter doesn't have to answer for what they did wrong, don't punish them um, and there's no scrutiny, they can just go on with their lives, is mm. ludicrous. But all of a sudden, we're treating sports people, like, especially in the Australian male men's codes, like they are untouchable. And the thing is, mm. again, I like Mitch Barnett, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying mm. to drag him's name across the coals. It's more that if Mitch Barnett walks out the day after, they go, there's a press conference, Mitch Barnett's up. You go, hey, Barney, did you say it? And he goes, no, mate, I didn't say it. I promise you I didn't say it. You know, mm. I wouldn't be racist ever. I, I apologise to Tyrone Peachy. That's the end of it. That's the yeah. literal minute when we all start going, okay, Barnett said he didn't do it. Peachy said he did. You know, no resolution, whatever. See you later. 
But yep. a month later, if he gets put up, I guarantee you in three weeks' time, some journalist, and there's Sydney journos and whatever, some journalist is going to stick in there, hey, Mitch Barnett, did you say what, um, what Tyrone Peachy said you said? Yep. But, but they don't. They hide them and then they give mm. them three weeks or four weeks. And that's the frustrating thing about the team sports these days. It's, I found it more in the NRL than anything else. The A-League, we tend to get a bit better access, but I feel like it's because they know they need publicity. So, But it, but again, when was the last time you heard of an A-League player doing something that stupid? You know, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Whereas I've said it before, if an NRL player does something stupid, if he gets charged with something, if he gets done for something stupid, if he gets done for drink driving or something like that, sorry, mate, first day back at training, you're talking to the media. And then if you don't like it, bad luck. You know, if mm. you don't like it, you shouldn't have done it in the first place. And that's it's the when did a, clubs. Sorry, yes, Matt, no, the question I had for, for Mitch was when did clubs um, sort of really start to um, try and control a lot of things in house? Now, you, you mentioned the example of, of sort of essentially gagging Mitch Barnett, uh, for lack of a better word, um, and, and restricting access to good journalism. Obviously, it's, it's the fear of, of this clickbaity type. You know, B-grade journalism that you know competition for clicks and content. You know, to, to write a you know a, a half-truth article in order to get the ad revenue from the, from you know whoever's advertising on the website. At what period of time did you really start to notice that shift? Literally, you hit the nail on the head there. It was the social media movement. So probably in the mid two thousands to late two thousands, where. Twitter and Facebook made everything so much more immediate so that if the player said it or did it or something happened, it wasn't like it happened and then the next day the back page of the paper was what everybody was going to read about it. It was going to be read about 10 minutes after they said it. And so it feels like, like put it this way, with the Knights, it was a lot more open when Michael Hagan was there and Brian Smith was there. We got to make relationships with players. I still felt like you got to meet them and talk to them and, and establish a rapport with them. When Bennett came in, it became absolutely shut up shop. And it was because of, you know, his philosophy, mm. he, hates, he hates the media. And then a lot of the players he drags around with him were guys that also hated the media, media, Darius Boyd, Bo Scott. They were guys that didn't want to speak to the media and they loved the fact that Wayne didn't necessarily care whether they spoke to the media or not. Wayne loves ABC regional radio because it broadcasts the footy to, you know, the far reaches of the country. And he's 150 years old, which is basically their listenership. Like, hopefully you guys are all tuning in, though. <laughs> but, but he, that was when it all started. And, and you know, we, we still got things here and there, but it was just a general trend around that time mm. of you got less and less access to the players. You got to know them less and less. You didn't get a chance to establish that you were a good person and you were going to look after them if you did it. Um, and, you know, there were some bad things that happened around that era um, and, and, you know, we had some, some scandals and just the more and more that sort of stuff. But it's because stuff gets out now, you know, and I've said this before, if the Knights of the Andrew Johns era had mobile phones that had so, um, cameras and all that sort of stuff, they would have been subject to the same scrutiny that players are now and go back mm. to the 80s, go back to the 70s. If the technology existed back then, this trend would have happened back then. It's just the technology that has made it less likely that they're going to open up to you because they're going to get in trouble for all the things that they've done. It's not that the players now are less well-behaved than the players from 20 years ago. They're probably more well-behaved on, on, yeah. on mm. general, but it's just that they're going to get caught more often. 
And as a news uh, reporting sort of service, how have you had to change the way you go about your business um, to counter that sort of, you know, clickbait social media type approach to reporting and breaking news? It's a matter of, like I was saying to you guys before, it's like you try and build your rapport with the athletes so that they trust you. Like a great example is um, Sam Pullman, who is a defender for the Giants net super netball team. Um, Sam was someone that played in Adelaide. We didn't really have her on our radar, didn't really realise she was a hunter girl. And then when she moved home to play for the Giants, um, we started doing a story here and there with her. But I'm at the stage now where Sam sent me a message to say congratulations on having twins. You know, like I know her well enough that when I see her, I give before COVID, I give her a hug and a kiss on the cheek. How are you, Sammy? But she trusts me. So, you know, it's someone that I could always call upon to do an interview and I kind of feel like in those instances, we've gotten more coverage of those people because they'll give us access to who they are and what they're doing. When it comes to the nights, I guess it's more, we try and kind of bargain where we'll say, look, you know, we'll do a story um, with these players. And, you know, if they're interested in, uh, you know, if they're interested in, in another sport, if they're interested in something else, we'll do a profile piece on them, but then you get at, you, that's how you get your access to them. And that's how you get more of an insight. So it's kind of like, you kind of end up doing a little bit of favour for the club in, in a sense. It's like you'll go to the sponsorship announcement because Mitchell Pierce is there, but you'll get to talk to him about everything on the day. And so yeah. rather than being something where you used to be able to get their phone numbers and call them whenever, like go back to when Rick Stone was a coach. I knew Rick from the Gold Coast because he was the Burley Bears coach when I worked up there. Mm. So I was comfortable. Rick was the sort of person that the nights would play on a Sunday. Monday, I'd be in the office looking, scratching around for a story and I'd ring Rick and say, what are you doing? He'd say, oh, I'm finished at the office. I'm driving back to Belmont in half an hour. I'd say, meet me at Union Street and we'll do an interview on the side of the road. You know, that's mm. not even 10 years ago. Now, mm. I can't even get Adam O'Brien's phone number. Mm. Yeah, wow. And so the the difference in the relationship between, you know, 10 years ago and now, it's just so meticulously um, controlled that you basically just have to try and find other ways. Like today was a good example. Josh King, really like him. He was doing a Zoom, uh, virtual uh, Zoom into the John Hunter Children's Hospital to talk to kids who were stuck in the hospital. And my sort of bargaining chip for that was I got to talk to Josh about whatever I wanted. So I did a Zoom with him before the um, part with the kids happened. And then my story included Josh talking about how he wants to try and play as many games as possible because he's up for contract extension. But then afterwards, you you know, the story was nice and he was doing, and he's a great bloke and he was talking to kids in the hospital. So I included that stuff in the story as well as the fact that Josh is saying he's pretty desperate to play, especially this weekend, because he wants to prove that he's worth another contract. Mm. Yeah. Mitch, what about um, for you, mate, over the 20 years or so you've been reporting on sport, what about the change in community sport and in particular around Newcastle? Like, So obviously the professional sports have gotten more well-managed, more controlled, and the relationship is less... Is it more competitive at the community sport level? Do, do, do you, you know, what's it like at that particular level? And what do you think COVID is going to impact for those community clubs? Just the, the people that are, you know, volunteer run and all those type of things. I think sport in general has definitely become more professional. If you look at the Newcastle Rugby League, they've got guys coming in and out of the NRL. So there's a, there's a, 
and <clears throat> that's been something they've had to juggle because there's been so much money in the Newcastle Rugby League. And so a lot of the clubs would rely on getting guys' jobs in the mines and stuff like that. So whereas before it was something where you would play for the club and you might get the job, but it's now you pay the guy and you get him a good job. And that's become mm-hmm. a lot more professional. There are guys getting paid tens of thousands of dollars to play Newcastle Rugby League. And it's, it's big money. And, you know, you've got guys playing for the Panthers in the NRL coming back, Luke Walsh, to, you know, lead Wests to a championship uh, last year. And um, the football soccer in Newcastle is now part of a... a, 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 a nationwide network of football. And it's basically they've got stipulations on how professional you have to be. You have to have enclosed grounds. You have to have coaches with A licenses and all that sort of stuff. And then all this stuff costs money. So the fact that they've been impacted by COVID um, is also going to hurt them as well. Um, but I mean, it, for I guess in football terms, soccer football terms, they're trying to create like a second division in Australia because obviously football codes around the world all have promotion and relegation and they're trying to get that going. I think this will hurt that in a couple of ways because the Sydney Olympics of the world and the Marconis and all that sort of stuff, you know, they're not getting any gate receipts and they rely heavily on that stuff. So that's definitely going to hurt them for a couple of years. They wanted to establish a second division in Australia, I think by 2022. And I don't think that will be the case because I think it's just going to be too hard at the moment. Um, But yeah, I think all professionals, sorry, all grassroots community sports again, rely on volunteers. They should be, if they're not working, they don't have time to earn a wage, but then come and volunteer on the weekend. They can't be giving up their weekend if they haven't worked during the week. Um, Sponsorship on local level, you've got to have the accounting firm, the building firm, you know, all that sort of stuff, earning money to put into the local clubs because they rely on sponsorship pretty heavily as well. Um, I've definitely noticed the professionalism of all the codes go up, but we still get let's call it unfettered access to whoever we want sort of in the local codes. Like I could tell you any, you know, team player code in any sport across the Hunter, if I needed to, I guess I could make one phone call and get the number of someone because again, in their case, they want the publicity. They need the publicity. They're really happy to have the publicity in the Knights case. It's probably a bit of a catch 22. Sometimes they want the publicity, but they certainly don't want it to be negative. Yeah. As um, streaming services, like Bar TV, for example, who I'm not, I'm not sure if they uh, still exist in their sort of former iteration are still going around, but say, you know, the live streams of the Hunter Rugby final series and Newcastle Rugby League and, and Netball or whatever else is going on, is, is that uh, sort of more of a help to a news service provider like you guys or do you kind of run in some ways in direct competition? It's, it's an interesting one. I feel like at first it was something where it was quite jarring because we were thinking, oh, wow, we used to be the organisation that brought you the vision of all these sports and then all of a sudden, even to the point where when Lambton Jaffers got promoted to the Premier League in Newcastle, I went to their um, team management and said, guys, you need a spot to shoot from because they didn't have a grandstand where you could stand to shoot. So they built a platform on their dugout for us to shoot from. And the first time we turned up to use it, Bar TV was already set up on there. And I looked over and said, oh, I got them to build this. And they were like, oh, we got here first because they do reserve grade as well. And we were like, oh, so the same thing happened at Maitland. The same thing happened at South Cardiff. And basically I had to get to the stage where I rang all the clubs and said, look, we're going to have to build two platforms. And, you know, in the end, I probably benefit from it a little bit in that I feel like if someone is a, a sports lover who tunes into my news, they'd much rather tune in and see the fact that we shot a game of footy 
and one game of, let's say, soccer, and we shot some hockey earlier in the day, and then I've used a bit of bar TV to cover a bit of rugby and a bit of league, rather than the old style, which was whatever we shot is whatever we shot, and the other stuff was just graphics for scores. Because mm, yeah. I think if you're a sports viewer, you'd rather tune in and see the try, the goal, the you know, the basket, whatever. And so we are limited with our resources. And the problem is we're kind of doing this thing where regional resources aren't going up, but the expectation to provide more content is going up. So mm. I can't get over time to send someone to the Newcastle Hunters men's game on mm. seven o'clock on a Saturday night because we don't budget for that. You know, the guys finish mm. at six thirty the camos finish at six thirty. But if it's Maitland versus Newcastle and that's the local derby, I can ask the boss in advance and say, Hey, can I send a camo to that and he'll authorise an hour's overtime and I'll have to get a camo and say, mate, do you mind giving up your Saturday night to go and shoot the basketball? But mm. that's twice a season, you know, once in Maitland, once in Newcastle. So, but the expectation for content is there because, as you said, social media, they want to go on social media the next day on Facebook and see the highlights. They don't want to see a score, you know, they want to see yeah. Newcastle 78, Maitland 74. They want to see, you know, triple double from, you know, whoever, you know, Ryan Beastie scored a triple double or something like that. You know, they don't, they don't, and they want to see it. They don't want to, you know, they want to read about it. They want to see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's a direct result of that social media phenomenon where basically what we are is all just basically content devourers that are just looking for the vision, like what's the next video that someone's going to post, right? So the whole YouTube generation. Yeah. So, yeah, that's Which an interesting phenomenon. quite interesting, Matthew, you make that point because uh, the NBA unveiled the court designs for the finals starting tomorrow and um, they have the, the court decal in the middle of the NBA logo, but... Uh, down the bottom, it's got presented by YouTube TV, which you know you have your major broadcasters in the states, TNT and ESPN, that traditionally have, you know, and they still will. But you know that broadcast then is, in, in essence, you know, showing for forty-eight minutes of a broadcast, a direct, you know, streaming rival in YouTube TV as a major sponsor. So, yeah, it's a little bit like for sporting competitions, streaming services are almost becoming the new alcohol and tobacco sponsorship, right? Like it's all like they're the new, they're throwing money into, into the leagues, which is new revenue, which the league needs. Like every league needs it. Every sport needs it to survive. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're the NBA or whether you're the, the women's field hockey here in Newcastle. It doesn't matter. You need, you need the actual money. What were you going to say? No, Sorry, you take them dollars. No, I was just going to say, speaking of like YouTube clips and things like that, we did want to ask Mitch, Give us some uh, on air gaffes, or do you have any uh, good good little slip ups you might have? <laughs> well, my favourite non me slip up was um, my predecessor Mike Rabbit, who I uh, adore and who did heaps for me in my career. So I'm not putting crap on him either. But uh, he wasn't the biggest fan of the round ball code. So uh, the first time he saw Thierry Henry on the auto cue, it got Terry Henry. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't he so Mike Rivett didn't like soccer oh no no he just he, he was rugby rugby league and it was it wasn't he disliked it it was more that he didn't yeah, watch yeah. the Premier League he didn't watch yeah, uh, all that okay. sort of stuff he, he, he commentated so he just didn't know sort of he didn't know who Thierry Henry was <laughs> no I remember him reading I remember him reading the tennis once and the tennis and the um the tennis and the Tour de France are always my two and a bit of the F1 are always the ones where unless you've watched the actual event, they're always the hardest to pronounce. 
And uh, I think Rabs did a tennis one once and he just stumbled over 15 different names. And he got to the end of it and he turned to the newsreaders and he said, whatever happened to the Smiths and Joneses? That's the name for. <laughs> Rabs is a bit of casual racism in the if, uh, broadcast. <laughs> if you and Rabs were, were, were recast into the Anchorman uh, movies, what characters would you be? Oh, I get the uh, whammy. I get uh, Ch- Champ. What's his name? Champ Kine. Champ Kine. Whammy. So, Mitch, what about your favourite Mitch Hughes broadcasting gaffe? Have you had any close calls, mate? Have you? Well, look, it bas- wasn't my favourite, but uh, <laughs> it was a slip of the tongue. Um, let's just say that uh, there was a period there in my career where I was working Friday to Tuesday, and there wasn't um, a lot of time. Well, there was a lot of time for socialising, but not a lot where I got to sleep in the next day and not have to work. So Friday nights out, Saturday nights out. So there was a lot of days where I might have been nursing a bit of a hangover going into work after hosting a function (laughs) or something like that. And the last story on the news this particular night was a story about a girl in America who'd been panning for gold with her family and she'd found a huge chunk of gold or a diamond or something like that. And the last line of the story was... Um, and she's going to use the money from the sale of the diamond um, to pay for her college career. And it came back and Jane Goldsmith turned to me and she said something and I turned and said, oh, yeah, and I was going to say, what a smart girl. But instead my brain said, oh, yeah, she's pretty smart for a girl. Oh. <laughs> and Jane Goldsmith didn't give me a chance to correct myself. She turned she said, anyway, that's the news, good night. And I looked at her and went... <gasps> And I literally didn't sleep that night because I literally thought the morning radio <laughs> programs were all going to be calling in going, Mitchell Hughes is a massive, like, you know, he's a sexist. He's sexist he doesn't stuff. love women. He thinks girls can't do anything. I didn't it's sleep. The- I walked in the next morning and my now second in charge, Kate Haberfield, who reads the news on the nights when I'm not there, uh, the sports are on the nights I'm not there. I walked in the next morning and she said, here he is, Mitch Hughes, pretty smart for a boy. And I just looked at her and almost basically broke down in tears. And I thought, <laughs> I was going to lose my job. Nobody, <laughs> nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. It went completely <laughs> under the radar. If that, if that was 2020, like now, you would have been noticed and you would have been cancelled. I think so uh, too. The, the whole cancel culture would have got you and um, you'd have been probably lining up for JobKeeper already. Speaking of cancelled, <laughs> let me go and get my charger. My computer's about to run out of battery. <laughs> oh, here you go. He's left. All right, boys. So while Mitch is gone, because we did speak earlier about... Um, about the whether he'd want to predict the NBA finals. Mitch doesn't know heaps about the NBA since Ben Simmons is, is dropped off the perch. Who's, who's, who's going to win the NBA finals, boys, the Heat or the Lakers? I want the Heat, but Lakers will. Right. Okay. Streety, who you got? I think, um, I mean, I mean, you, you know, my, my, my tip has been the Lakers all year, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Heat really pushed them. Um, I, I think matchup-wise... Miami present quite a lot of, uh, I guess, challenges for, for the Lakers. I mean, the Lakers ultimately have the best two players across both teams. Um, Miami definitely has more depth across two teams. But probably where, where Miami can really potentially win this is they're going to have three or four bodies that they can throw at LeBron. So they're going to have 20-odd fouls they can, they can throw at LeBron throughout a game. Um, where probably the Heat um, are going to fall short potentially is... Their probably lack of depth at, at centre. So you know, um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers win, and and uh, you know, maybe maybe six games, maybe five. Um, but Anthony Davis should, uh, you know, if you're going to bet on the Finals MVP, might be that guy. 
Jesus, you've just spoken for two and a half minutes and not really given an answer. That's fantastic. I don't know anybody. Did I told that. you. I, 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 <laughs> I I've said the Lakers all along. Oh, the Lakers right, all along. Yeah. I think Miami can push them, and you know, I, I, right. I don't think it'll be a sweep. Mitchie, um, while you were gone, mate, I can see that you're back now. But while you were gone, we decided to fill by by asking whether uh, who the boys thought was going to win the NBA Finals, which start tomorrow. Miami Heat or the LA Lakers, mate? Who do you who do you think's going to win? Do you, do you have an opinion or? Well. I was saying to you boys before we started that uh, I do follow the NBA, but mainly when Ben Simmons is playing because he's a Newcastle junior and it gives me the privilege of being able to put him on the news. So uh, I have to admit when uh, Ben went uh, out for the season, I stopped watching a lot. But um, I think having watched the Lakers and knowing what LeBron can do and his finals experience, uh, I think that, you know, I would be putting money on the Lakers. But uh, I've got a bit of a story about Went to LA a year and a half ago, and we were all the way down in LA after traveling all the way down the West Coast. Bought tickets, paid a fortune to go and watch the Lakers play. I'm a Bulls fan from back in the day, but uh, wanted to see the Lakers in their new stadium. Went down there, paid paid the money, was going to see the Warriors play them, coming off their championship, and uh, paid an absolute fortune. Two days before the game, they ruled LeBron out for the season because they wanted to get a better draft pick. And then you didn't say you'd paid heaps of cash for seeing the B-grade yeah. sides. The Warriors, um, were, the Warriors were winning 32 to 6 at quarter time. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so, did, you um, try, did you try and pull the old press pass or anything, you know? I actually did. I sent a message to the Channel 9's bureau chief in Los Angeles to see if I could get a behind-the-scenes tour, and he said even he can't get one, and he's lived in LA for 20 years. Uh, wow. Um, I was in the States last year on a sports spit uh, trip and uh, the, the game we went to in LA was actually the LA versus Miami. So it was a, a finals preview, the regular season game from this year, which the Lakers won in a pretty low scoring affair. So maybe take, take that as an omen. Who knows? It's, just as a bit of a brief question, if you wanted to, to get an interview with someone like Ben Simmons, how easy or hard is that to do for you, mate? That's pretty, still pretty difficult with contacts because he's an international athlete or what? It depends where, when, like the context. Like if I was overseas, um, mm. strangely enough, I've read a few articles by Australian journalists that say it's actually, there was a famous example where a guy from the Sydney Morning Herald went to the US to go and cover the NBA finals and he said, they put everybody up and he got access one-on-one to everybody from the Warriors. I think it was when the Warriors played the Cavs mm. and he said he got anybody he wanted. So he got LeBron, he got Steph Curry, he got whoever he wanted. He couldn't get access to Andrew Fafita that year when they wouldn't let Fafita put up for media for the New South Wales team because <laughs> of what he wrote on his strapping tape. So to be honest, a lot of the time it's not too bad, but um, it just depends who they are, whether you know somebody. Put it this way, Quat Noy that plays for Cairns mm. in the NBL, former Newcastle junior. I've got stories I've done with him when he lived here. I sent a me- message to their media manager during COVID and said, look, Quat's obviously been you know, written up as a guy that's training, wants to maybe go to the draft. He's friends with Ben Simmons. Ben's been helping him. It's a great little angle for us. You know, is there any chance you can get quite? I got a message back from the media manager. It said, no worries. I'll get right on it. I've never heard back from her since. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Mitchie, if if you do want to have a, eventually have a chat with Ben Simmons, one of the best ways to do that is just to go through us. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard that, boys. I've heard you party hard with him down in Melbourne. No, that's not true. That's it. Well, yeah, anyway. We were the, <laughs> those stories are unfounded. But, well, Mitch, Mitch what let, is, sorry, Macca. Does it go? I was going to just get Mitch to uh, touch on something he knows 
probably a little bit better, but maybe that'll follow your question um, to give us a, a bit of a more of an in-depth preview of the NRL finals, which begin this weekend. Yeah, to be honest, starting, I guess, with the Knights, it's hard. Like, I could see them bouncing back this week because um, they've had a record this season of, of putting on a horrible performance and coming back the next week and doing quite well. But I find it very hard to believe they could beat anybody that's in the top four at this stage of the season, the way that they're playing um, mm. and the way that other teams in the top four are playing. Um I reckon a month ago, I would have said that the Eels were more of a chance of winning the comp. Now, I don't think that they'd get past the Storm or the Panthers or the Roosters. Um, to be honest, I think out of the top three is where you're going to see the title uh, won. Um, I don't know. The Panthers, they shouldn't be as good as they are, considering, you know, they don't have out-and-out stars and that, but they just seem to keep turning up every week and, you know, doing what they need to do. So, um, but I... I I've backed the Storm a lot this season when people have been like, oh, no, not the Storm. And the Storm have won a lot of games this season in that respect. So maybe a Storm-Penrith grand final, which is, I guess, the Roosters is the one you'd be leaving out. But, yeah, maybe a Storm-Penrith grand final and uh, maybe the Storm. If you had yeah, a Smokey? Nice. Smokey... Maybe the Raiders, only because Ricky Stewart's really angry and I feel like you just want to make sure you're not pissing him off. (laughs) Ricky is an angry man. (laughs) He is a very angry man. And, and Mitch, what what have the Jets got in store? You just mentioned earlier, mate, that that obviously, like, whenever the A-League starts, they may have a new owner. What are their chances, mate? Are we ever going to see the glory days again? It's a really weird one for me because I think with the Jets... um, so I actually became quite close with Ernie Merrick. Ernie was actually the kind of coach that I feel like, you know, journos in Sydney who build a rapport with the coaches in the NRL, for example, you know, they go way back. Ernie was the kind of guy that like Ernie sent me a message when the boys were born as well. And um, yeah, well. he was the kind of guy that he just knew the value of what NBN can actually bring to an A-League club. And mm. he would ring me every now and then and say, look, you know, oh, great example. His, his brother-in-law passed away. I don't know, second season or third season he was here. And I went up to him at training and, and said, hey, Ernie, how are you going? And he said, um, he said, Mitch, just letting you know, my brother-in-law's passed away. It's only Tuesday. I'm flying down to uh, Melbourne to be with my wife and, you know, the family. All right, here's the rest of the week. Roy O'Donnell is not going to play. This bloke is going to play, blah, blah. Do what you want with him, but maybe drip feed him out over the next couple of days, um, you know, and if you need anything else, just give me a call. <laughs> and I thought it was the kind of respect. What a legend. That, the kind of respect that you just didn't <clears throat> always get from coaches mm. that I was really, really um, heartbroken when he got the sack because I felt like there was no money coming into the club and, and, you know, they weren't able to spend money on players. And then all of a sudden we lost Ernie as a coach. And then when we brought in Carl Robinson as the new coach, all of a sudden there was six assistant coaches that we signed Bernie Abini, We signed um, Roy O'Donovan back to the club. You know, there was all these signings and then, we pretty much went from being also Rams to being the best team in the comp since the, after the COVID shutdown. Mm. The big thing for the Jets, they were awesome once they came back from the COVID shutdown. Carl Robinson's a good guy. He's a good coach. <laughs> I'm still yelling, according to the wife. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Laura. 
Um, but the big thing will be um, the new owner and the money, uh, basically. Yeah. If the new owner comes in and the money's there, they've already re-signed Bernie Avini for the next campaign. They've got O'Donovan. Um, they've got a bit of money for a few other guys. They've lost Jimmy Petrados. Um, it'll depend, I think, on the structure of the A-League, whether or not other clubs have spent any money, whether the downturn in the broadcast deal means that other clubs have got money to spend. But um, I think it'll also depend on the new owners because it feels like the Jets always get an owner who comes in all guns blazing, but then seems to have no money after 10 minutes taking over the club. You know, Con Constantine had all this money. The Jets won the grand final. Guys went to him and said, we, we won the grand final. Could we have a pay rise? And he turned around and said, get stuffed. I don't have any money. And I was like, well, you can't open a club if you don't have any money. You know, and then the same thing. Tinkler came in, all guns blazing. Emil Heskey, you know, all these things. We went well, the sponsorship was up, the you know, the um, revenue was up, the members were up, all that sort of stuff. All of a sudden he's got no money and you know, got the club taken off him and now Martin Lee, the same thing. So it just feels like they're a bit cursed when it comes to uh, who they're getting as owners. And um, the one thing I find weird about the game in Newcastle is the disconnect. There are 60,000 people playing the game in Northern New South Wales and the Jets have only got 10,000 members. There are like 12,000 people playing rugby league in the Hunter and there's 20,000 members for the night. So mm. for me, there's a disconnect between people playing the game and people following the game that they've got to get right or the A-League's going to be stuffed. Yeah. The bloodlines of rugby league run very deep within the Hunter Valley and it's a, it's a difficult one to kind of get across. But you're absolutely right. I think soccer as a sport needs to solve that disconnect between the amount of people that enjoy playing the game versus the amount of people that are prepared to show up and watch a game. So Yeah, and a disconnect yeah. between like people. I know people who would be like, I follow Liverpool, but they don't follow the Jets. And I'm sort of like, well, wouldn't mm. you like to go and watch football in your own backyard rather than waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning to watch it every week? And they're like, yeah. oh, no, the quality's crap. And I'm like, well, you've got to start somewhere. I'm sure in 1898 <laughs> the rugby league wasn't great. <laughs> That's exactly right. And Mitch, probably one of the last questions, because so we can let your game mate so you don't get in too much trouble with your wife. He'll be but, belted once he leaves this room. Yeah, he would too. <laughs> mate, what about the sporting landscape in Newcastle? Is there room? You know, you spoke a little bit earlier about the Knights kind of sapping up a lot of the sponsorship money, which is is par for the course in a, in a town our size. But is there room for other professional sports? Do you see any other professional clubs joining the landscape in Newcastle, mate? I feel like the vibe is quite strong for a WNBL team. Um, I feel like that new stadium that they're uh, building out at, well, I guess it's Hillsborough, um, mm. is going to be, I guess, the catalyst for putting a team together that could actually play in the WNBL. I think the WNBL doesn't quite have the the money um, problems that, you know, the other ones have because the wages aren't exorbitant. And if these girls play in Newcastle, I mean, you could rattle off a starting five almost now for Newcastle with girls who are actually from Newcastle who are playing mm. in the WNBL. If you could get Katie Ray Evsery back, if you could get Cass McLean, Lara McSpadden, Hannah Young, um, mm. there's plenty of girls who are from Newcastle. So I feel like if that could happen in the next two or three years, there's momentum enough to get a team like that. I think with the NBL, it's about two things. One, the Newcastle Entertainment Centre is not big enough anymore. It used to be big enough, I think, for the NBL back in the day, but mm. the state government floated about three years ago building a new entertainment centre next to McDonald Jones Stadium where the um, gym is and the putt-putt mm. and all that sort of stuff, and it's meant to house 10,000 people. I think if you get that, and that can be converted into a basketball court, 
uh, Wests did straight after they took over the Knights talk about how they would never buy the soccer franchise in Newcastle, but they would happily take on a license for an NBL franchise. So mm. I think if they're capable of running the Knights at a profit, then I think there is going to be momentum enough to potentially have a basketball franchise in Newcastle. And I think there's enough people. I mean, look how unfortunate we were when we got the Kings, uh, you know, to play here. What was that? 18 months ago, two years ago. And, you know, the bloody court was wet or something. And both yeah. was like, no, we're not playing, you know, and I just mm. thought how fitting that, you know, like the game was here. We had a full crowd and it was just cursed that we didn't end up playing. But to yep. me, it showed that there was, enough interest in people going to watch. I mean, you were going to watch the Kings, I think it was versus the Hawks, maybe. The, um, it was. The Warrior Hawks. And I thought... The Falcons' biggest rivals from back in the day. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who used to go, the atmosphere to me back in the late 90s was awesome. You know, this was before, like, Ben Melmoth is a good friend of mine, and obviously I went a lot because Benny was playing. But pre-Benny, I was at high school, and we just liked going and watching the Falcons play before Ben was actually back playing in 96, 97, 98. 5,000 people would go to the stadium. The atmosphere was awesome. It was, you know, it was definitely worth going. And I feel like it's the ownership model, I think, that, you know, they have to work out in a regional town. Like, how does Townsville do it, you know, with the NBL team up there? How does, um, you know, Cairns do it with the Taipans? You know, how do these towns that are a third of the size of Newcastle sustain these franchises? And, you know, are there models that we could be copying in that respect? Because... I agree. I think that Newcastle's way too big to only have one, maybe two um, franchises, but it's about the money that is there to sustain it. And unfortunately, we've gotten into a bit of a habit up until recently with the Knights of being a bit of a feeder club for other teams. You know, we would develop good players and then all of a sudden we would end up losing them to all the big rich clubs in Melbourne or Sydney. And I think that do you want to put up with being a team that could develop the next, you know, Ben Simmons but losing to, you know, Sydney, then losing to the NBA. And can you put up with that? Or do you always, and that's the problem, Newcastle fans, not always fickle, but I think, you know, we love a winner. And, um, you know, the Jets had 10,000 members and suddenly they sold the grand final out with 30,000 ticket holders in, you know, a day and a half. So where are the 20,000 people that turned up for the grand final who didn't turn up for every other game, every other time? And the same thing, when the Falcons were good and we made the playoffs and we were, you know, making it. We had 5,000 that was sold out at the Newcastle Entertainment Centre. When we were the Pirates and we were second last, they were down to 2,000 and, you know, couldn't draw a crowd. So oh, We sounded like a crowd of 5,000, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old the 20,000 that went to the Jets grand final were probably all at, like, all at home for the rest of the weeks posting something about Liverpool's you'll never walk alone or whatever on their social media <laughs> account to try and make themselves look better as fans of the game. Mitch, Thank you so much for joining us on Sports and Spit. We really appreciate your time, mate, and your insight. And and we really want to watch you for the next twenty years on NBN. But we'd probably prefer to uh, we'd probably prefer to watch you on ESPN, mate. So hopefully the career continues on the trajectory that it is now, buddy. Thanks, so, boys. Thanks, you. Absolutely. And, and Mitch, just one last question before you go. I'm just curious to know uh, what happens when you sit in the makeup chair. Like, how much do they actually put on? <laughs> <laughs> Look at him, he's all natural. <laughs> um, makeup takes about 10 minutes and hair takes it. Well, if the hair's just been cut, it takes about two minutes. Right. There's not, yeah. a, lot to, not a lot to move around. There's not a lot of improvements to make on perfection, is there? <laughs> just, <laughs> just a bit of uh, non-reflective foundation, eh? Uh, I'm always too busy when I sit in the chair anyway. I'm like, come on, come on, I've got three stories still to write. It's got to go to air. Come on. <laughs> 
Uh, good on you, mate. Well, thank you. We appreciate your presence in our living rooms and on our bloody podcast tonight, my friend. All right. No thank you, Mitch. We're going to switch it off right about now. Cheers.